Hello, and welcome to our At Any Rate Emerging Markets Special Topic Podcast, where we will focus on some recent work which takes stock of issues around sovereign debt restructurings. I'm Johnny Goulden from the Emerging Markets Strategy Team here at JP Morgan, and I'm joined by Ben Ramsey, also from our Emerging Markets Sovereign Credit Strategy Team. Ben, thanks for joining. Hey, Johnny, how are you? It's very nice to be here. So um, there's been a lot of discussion in the last year and maybe just to set the scene for listeners over the inability of the current emerging market sovereign debt restructuring architecture, i.e. the rules and procedures that we have in place to restructure debt of countries that can't pay, the ability of that architecture to deal with a new wave of sovereign restructurings, which we're seeing. There's been a lot uh, made of the rise of China as now the largest bilateral lender or creditor to emerging market countries. Although, as we point out, actually bondholders are still the largest lenders overall. So let's set the scene here in terms of the problem that we're going to be talking about. And that is really a decade of easy money Um, from central banks globally, and that helped many new emerging market countries come to international debt markets, bond markets to borrow money, uh, as well as some not so new countries as well. And they borrowed money from uh, bond markets and from other sources as well, governments, multilateral institutions like the IMF, etc., And now we have the largest Fed hiking cycle in 40 years. We've had a COVID pandemic, the impact of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and all of that has combined to lead several of these emerging market countries into default. uh, And bond markets are pricing out access for a host of other countries as well to be able to borrow. And that gives us a basic problem. There's an increasing need to restructure EM sovereign debt but a more complicated landscape in which to do it with a larger set of creditors and no clear restructuring rule book. uh, And that is causing delays. And those delays in the restructuring process have an economic cost. They also have a societal cost. uh, And so dealing with that uh, is the problem I think we're going to spend our time talking about. Obviously, the G20 has proposed a new process called the Common Framework, which aimed to get creditors together but for many countries involved in that it's stalled and given the lack of speedy successes so far and the likelihood of more sovereign stress to come there's a whole range of proposals for ways to really try and improve or fully revamp this sovereign debt architecture for restructuring so it's good to be joined by you ben to review Um, these issues that are troubling the current uh, uh, emerging market sovereign debt landscape. uh, And we'll also talk about some of those proposed solutions. Um, But let's start with a simple question. Why are these debt workouts for EM countries taking so much longer to complete? Well, Johnny, uh, I think in the past, when we had episodes of, of debt restrictions, which were dragged out, we could oftentimes point to uh, private creditors, sometimes bondholders. I think this time around, really, we're looking at uh, the official sector. So here we're talking about the so-called Paris Club, which is uh, our bilateral lenders, governments, generally Western governments. Uh, we're talking about the IMF, which is central to the, the process of, of restructurings insofar as it, it lends and it also needs to have 
uh, a program which is financed uh, given a debt sustainability analysis. And then we have new bilateral lenders, which are sort of coming to the table um, really for the first time and trying to learn about how this process works. And what we're seeing is we often are having a lack of agreement uh, when these three uh, official factors are coming to the table, specifically over what type of concessions really need to be made in order to allow workouts uh, to, to transpire. And this is taking place before we get to, for the most part, discussions with private creditors. So it's the difficulty of the official sector, uh, again, improving these, including prominent non-Paris Club lenders, of which China is often uh, the, the prominent figure at the table, this, this, this inability of them to agree on a systemic process and a scope of their own debt restructuring, which often is leaving private creditors waiting a resolution before the whole thing can move forward. Oftentimes the IMF needs to feel more comfortable about the bilateral financing assurances, what the, what the countries are going to give in terms of their concessions. And these have been dragged out in disputes over uh, technical issues, comparability of treatment, basically that all the concessions, all the relief as some, some form of everyone is sharing the burden. And disagreements over the debt sustainability analysis that the IMF does in the first place, how much relief is actually needed. Great. So. Just to delve into that a bit more, what has really changed, though, having these new lenders at the restructuring table this time around compared to what we were doing with debt restructuring over the last couple of decades? Yeah, so, again, it's basically we have many more new people at the table. Um, the basic pillars of, of the traditional sovereign debt landscape, uh, it developed organically. There wasn't, uh, you know, this is a sort of de facto system. But the lenders in the system, again, mainly from the West, um, worked with a sort of internal cohesion that worked well enough uh, in most instances. Uh, with the IMF and the Paris Club basically at the, at the forefront, um, there's lots of, uh, scholar, uh, of academic work from sovereign debt scholars, and, and they've observed that basically by the end of the, the 20th century going into the, the 21st century, there was a sort of reasonably, reasonably well-integrated regime um, de facto, uh, and and this was sort of working, uh, you know, in most cases pretty well. Although again, we've got some emblematic cases where there was problems, often involving private creditors. Um, I'd say in terms of how this old regime worked, China most notably, uh, as in terms of the most prominent uh, of the new non-Paris Club lenders, seems to have had some fundamental issues with how to reconcile the preferred creditor status that the IMF has, basically the IMF gets paid back in full before other, other lenders, uh, as well as other multilateral development banks. Uh, and also with trying to understand exactly this vision of comparability of treatment, the burden sharing, which is uh, the, the, the core necessity of the Paris Club when they come to the table. Um, these multilateral development banks, IMF and the World Bank, they say, well, we have very low cost lending. Uh, this is, uh, we have our own, the, the, the preferred creditor status is what underpins our own very high credit rating, which allows us to lend at preferential rates. And, and the, the IMF is, has a willingness and, and steps in in cases uh, where there's crisis, where no one else is, is stepping in. And this is basically the argument which they say justifies uh, the core principle of their preferred creditor status. Uh, in terms of debt sustainability analysis and the disagreements are there, you know, the, the Paris Club, as I mentioned, has always been sort of at the table here, and they've taken the IMF's assessments almost as a, as a given. Um, new lenders, uh, including China, but also including bondholders, 
often have their own views uh, about these debt sustainability analysis. They feel they should have input earlier, especially when they have more skin in the game in terms of their overall exposure. So that's the problem. I guess the common framework was meant to smooth these issues out, and this was somewhat anticipated. But what stopped that working in the way that, that we thought it would? So the common framework was, was called into being in 2021 by the G20, a uh, group of 20 uh, most developed countries and industrial, industrialized countries that, that come together to talk about global economic and financial issues. China is a part of the G20. Um, but it, even though they agreed to the common framework, it kind of feels like they and some other new bilateral lenders are still coming to terms with the traditional rules of the game. Uh, in particular, these issues over principal haircuts, how much debt relief they will give in terms of actually reducing the debt they're owed is one of the sticking points. Again, coming back to this idea of preferred creditor status. It seems that um, some of the new bilateral lenders, as I mentioned, want to have also more input on debt sustainability analysis, DSAs, uh, and, and how much relief the debtor countries are presumed to need, especially in countries, once I said again, where, where uh, China is, is now, as we've, as we've noted, is, is the, the larger bilateral creditor, uh, creditor, larger than the Paris Club. There's issue of transparency, uh, which have been brought to the table. Um, that's, I think, part of the, the, part of the problem of moving forward. Um, and as I said, again, private creditors, as much as it seems that some of the common framework was, was designed to make sure that they would uh, also be there in terms of burden sharing, um, are basically waiting for this, these fundamental disagreements um, from the official sector to, to, to work themselves out. There have been some more formal efforts, actually, to improve things. We've had, for example, the Global Sovereign Debt Roundtable. What was that one all about? Yeah, so the Global Sovereign Debt Roundtable was effectively formed uh, this year in February 2023 uh, to try to, to move the ball forward in terms of the issues that were troubling the common framework. It's really a concrete effort to address these sticking points uh, by formally bringing some more voices into the process. So uh, it allows private creditors to come to the table, but also debtor, sovereign debtor, uh, uh, sovereign, sovereign debtors to come into the discussion uh, and, and to talk about some of the more specific topics. And again, having some more voices at the table it can also put some pressure uh, to, for the, the, the key actors on the official creditor side, IMF, Paris Club, and then these new bilateral creditors to, to hopefully come to a better agreement on, the, on specific points. Some of the specific issues they're trying to tackle uh, is the lack of clarity on how to set off cuff, cutoff dates. This means the point in which um, sovereign debtors will stop paying debt service to all their, all their creditors. Uh, in the in the context of a workout, uh, how to assess and enforce again com comparability of comparability of treatment and burden sharing that it's fair, uh, a sharing of information across debtors debtors creditors uh, and the international financial institutions the the multi the, the, the IMF World Bank etc. Uh, these are some of the concrete issues that are being addressed. Great. So we've looked at so far, I guess, the problem and how we really got to that problem. Um, but given the delays that we've seen in these restructurings and the, the need to, to try and 
help alleviate them. There have been a, a range of proposals in recent years and months which have, have tried to suggest. Um, do you want to maybe start with, with some of these and, and then we can get to discussing the rest? Yeah, so I'd say, you know, one fundamental um, issue which has been brought to the table consistently is that of transparency. Um, there's been an initial basic proposal to make sure that all creditors and all debtors are aware of, of the debt obligations that are on the table and how they stack up against each other. On its face, this would be an obvious improvement, um, but it could create some tension as past lending practices uh, may not look particularly flattering upon different parties when brought into the light. There's been some academic work, uh, particularly just with the idea that some of this new bilateral lending um, is done in a way which is uh, basically in a way um, implying that, that the, the lenders, and, and often cases this is China, have ways to recover their debts, have ways to influence the debtors uh, in, in ways that are maybe not seen as fair by some of the other creditors at the table. Um, there's also a more complex set of claims that need to be considered beyond you know, bonds and beyond multilateral loans. Um, there's li liabilities of sub-sovereign entities, so state-owned ent enterprises. There can, be, uh, there can be lending with guarantees, uh, other contingent liabilities. There can be derivative transactions. There can be judgment creditors, those which have won an arbitration award. Um, there can be secured claims and concession agreements, number of different types of claims which make this also more complex and transparency around that is necessary in order, I think, to, to, advance, um, to, to, to advance the discussion. Okay, so transparency is one thing. There's also been a, a, a discussion about the actual process itself of, of the debt restructuring. What suggestions have there been about how that can be improved? Yeah, there's been a very specific technical discussion around uh, coming up with a uniform methodology to calculate the net present value of the debt relief uh, that is being provided in these restructurings. Um, there's different methodologies of calculating MPV, uh, the disagreement of, uh, about what is the best way, and different different creditors can take different stances here because uh, the, the amount of debt relief that which they will be brought to the table vis-a-vis -vis their own views for the, the ability of the, the country to regain sort of sustainability of debt can be different. So this would be a very straightforward improvement, again, in order to compare uh, apples to apples in terms of what different creditors are bringing to the table in terms of debt relief. But the devil is very much in the details. Uh, and there are, is, is still, I think, an important disagreement and discussions about how to go about doing this uh, across the different creditors. Um, there's been ways also to talk, uh, to, to, to try to, in terms of process, to try to improve this stall in terms of the sequencing. Maybe the private creditors don't have to be held up, that they can come to the table earlier. Um, there's been some proposals to perform a, uh, to propo uh, for a mechanism that would allow for IMF programs to proceed if adequate official sector financing assurances are still not uh, resolved, still pending. Um, there's been some suggestion of, of explicit time limits put into view on the table after which private sector creditors can negotiate their own claims. Even a suggestion of some type of quasi-arbitration mechanism that would resolve the official sector disagreement. It's not clear to us, however, why a reluctant bilateral creditor, say a China, would, would agree to subject itself to such uh, uh, an arbitration mechanism. At the end of the day, would it cause it to, to relinquish it 
the the idea that it has a prerogative to collect its debts on its own terms again other bilateral new new bilateral creditors may also have a, a similar stance when they're coming to the table and in in terms of the next set of improvements that that have been discussed and we'll try and distill what are some quite complex technical issues there are a range of proposals also about improving the instruments the contracts themselves the legal codes under which um, they're operating. So what's really being discussed there? Yeah, some of these, as you said, Johnny, get, get pretty complex pretty quickly. But there are, in terms of instruments, um, a, a lot of discussion about something which is not particularly new, um, value recovery instruments, uh, state, con state contingent uh, instruments. So basically securities that would pay more if the, the state of affairs in the country, the macroeconomic situation of the country, or a key commodity uh, that they the country exports has a better price level, um, basically to, to, to compensate the, the debtors in the restructuring that they could recover more if, if the country's recovering more, almost an equity type uh, in, in, in instrument. Um, you know, some of the, some of the, these issues, there's been issues around the ability to, to price some of these instruments, their liquidity. But it does seem to be that when we have a, a gap in terms of different creditors um, disagreeing on, on what's the best way to move forward in terms of the, the parameters, again, of debt sustainability, this is, these types of instruments can be useful. And we've seen some of them already in, in recent cases, uh, Suriname, for example, to try to, to close deals. Um, beyond that, newer ideas, uh, there's a, uh, the idea of a clause in bond contracts for a most favored creditor clause. This would impede the sovereign debtor from granting more favorable treatment to other creditors later on. Um, adopting such a clause in bond restructuring could in theory force the hand of the deadlocked official creditor, creditor debate, though I'd say absent an agreed uniform process to, again, to determine comparability of treatment it could prove very difficult to enforce in practice. Uh, and again, then also having the private sector bondholders be the first movers may not be particularly particularly welcome by the official sector, which I think still wants to have a prerogative in defining uh, the, the key terms, for example, of debt sustainability and also uh, uh, of who should be delivering, you know, what type of debt relief. Uh, there's also been statutory reforms, legal reforms. Uh, most notably, we've had a lot of uh, discussion lately about proposals to change New York law, where about half of sovereign uh, debt is, uh, external sovereign debt is issued uh, historically, traditionally, and, and now. You know, these proposals have come in different flavors. In general, they would seek to um, force creditors to cooperate in good faith. Uh, they would critically limit recovery amounts uh, when the restructuring is agreed by a majority of creditors. This is basically replicating a collective action clause. Uh, issues around sovereign immunity in terms of seizing different assets. So some of these ideas, you know, can, can make sense uh, in theory, but uh, I think statutory reform, legal reform, is feels like a risky path in, in terms of unintended consequences. Um, for New York in particular, we could see an undermining of the historical attractiveness of, of New York as a jurisdiction for attracting future bond issuance. So I think this should probably be weighed with a lot of caution considering both the costs, but also the effectiveness of these 
legal reforms, which are mainly aimed at roping in private creditors. And as we've been discussing, Johnny, we feel like the core uh, problem here in terms of advancing debt restructuring processes right now has really been at the level of the official sector, which would not be impacted by these types of legal reforms. Got it. There are also maybe just to mention at the end, some other solutions, which we've called grand scale proposals. What what are these exactly? And how are they looking to address some of the more systemic issues around debt restructurings? So some of these grand scale proposals really look to deal with, um, rather than, you know, trying to have a framework to deal with specific cases uh, of restructuring, it's really the idea that we may have a broader wave of debt restructurings that become systemic. Um, these plans generally in, involve, not surprisingly, the multilateral development banks, uh, the World Bank, regional development banks. Um, the IMF, of course, would be at the fore. There's been some discussion of trying to use the IMF's own currency, uh, the, the SDR, as a way to provide more capital that could either be used on the one hand to restructure outstanding debt, so bonded debt, which is in the market, which is trading at deep discounts, could be bought back by a fund, which is effectively backed by SDRs. This would kind of try to replicate what was done uh, in the 1980s, 1990s with the Brady Plan, where the, whereby the Treasury uh, provided a guarantee to, to, to bonded debt. That helped restructure bank debt back then. Uh, the idea, idea, again, would be to have these SDRs um, supporting buybacks of this kind of debt in the market. Uh, that would uh, lower the debt burden for the countries and sort of set a clean slate. I think the implementation of this and the details around this um, does have some issues. There can be some practical limitations. Probably this type of proposal, uh, given that there can even be some moral hazard considerations, uh, would not come into being unless we really do have this crisis uh, at the point where it's, it's overwhelming uh, the official sector and the countries. Um, there's been uh, discussion also of how to use uh, environmental considerations, debt nature swaps, uh, opportunistically when we're doing these restructurings. Uh, I think these definitely can be brought to the table. We've seen this recently, for example, with Ecuador. Uh, and it also happens when it can, it can come to pass when you have debt with the, the discounts in the markets and you can take advantage of some of the savings, redirect some of that savings to environmental projects. These are useful and I think that they can achieve important goals but they're unlikely to be uh, big enough in terms of scope and scale to really deal with a massive solvency crisis across a number of countries. Uh, so then there can be this question of what happens if a number of countries just lose market access altogether. This would be sort of a post-restructuring debate. Also discussing potentially the idea of using SDRs in a way whereby the multilateral development banks uh, would need more capital in order to lend more, uh, but rather than having uh, capital be injected into the balance sheet, which is basically a budgetary uh, outlay from the, the, the countries which own these, these MDBs, perhaps using the, the, the liability side of the balance sheet, issuing an SDR-denominated bond, uh, taking advantage of the much higher credit ratings that the, the MDBs have, uh, and thereby having uh, more resources with, with which to lend on an ongoing basis to lower income countries, which uh, presumably, as we've mentioned, may, have, may be losing market access on a permanent basis in the future. Thanks, Ben. And uh, obviously a lot to talk about here and appreciate you distilling these issues for us. 
uh, and taking us through the challenges uh, that we are seeing at the moment and uh, also the proposals that are being put out there in terms of how to deal with this basic problem of, of uh, the issues around debt restructurings at the moment. So that brings us to the end of this JP Morgan at any rate Emerging Markets special topic podcast. Thanks to you, Ben, for joining us today and thank you all for listening. And we hope to have you back again with us for the next one. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please refer to JP Morgan Research reports related to its content. For more information, including important disclosures, 2023 JP Morgan Chase & Company, all rights reserved. This episode was recorded on the 16th of June, 2023.